Welcome in to the Wednesday Bible Study from uh, the Rick and Bubba studios here at the Rick and Bubba Broadcast Plaza. Uh, thank you for being with us. I'm Rick Burgess, uh, co-host of the Rick and Bubba Show and uh, the director of themanchurch.com. Themanchurch.com is a hub uh, for men's ministry. We are available to, to help you as a community or you as a church to come up with a discipleship strategy to reach and then disciple uh, the men of your church and the men of your community. Uh, you know, men's ministry for a long time uh, did, a, did a pretty good job of high challenge, uh, but what seems to be sorely lacking is the part uh, called high equipping, and, and that's discipling uh, men uh, and, and teaching them uh, the things that we uh, point to in Scripture that all men are called to. Now, I know on this Wednesday Bible study, uh, there are women who watch this as well, and that is fine. Uh, but at, at its foundation, this was uh, this started as a men's uh, Bible study here in the studio, and we're getting closer and closer to the men returning to the studio. Uh, but like uh, the series we're on right now, uh, you know, some of these are, are designed for any uh, one who uh, is maybe trying to learn or, or investigating, uh, you know, redemption and and the one and only living God, or maybe someone who desires to grow spiritually through the uh, the process of unpacking the Word of God. Uh, whatever the situation is, we're glad that you are here. Uh, but as far as the men's ministry is concerned, a couple of things we want to pass along, and we're really getting excited. As the pandemic begins to lift a little bit and take its uh, uh, shoe off our neck, uh, we are starting to be able to open up and do more things with the gathering of men uh, into these small groups and also the larger groups for our discipleship strategy. We will kick off this Friday night, uh, that is March the 12th, uh, if you're listening to this or watching it uh, uh, during the week of March 12th, uh, we will be there Friday night, Westview Baptist Church in Op, Alabama. Uh, they have bought into the entire discipleship strategy. I'm honored to kick off with their first gathering of men, uh, Man Church, and at that uh, service, when it's over, we'll plug them into the small group setting, uh, and they'll all start the Pursuit 40-week curriculum together. We'll do the same thing coming up on um, uh, March the 25th in McGee, Mississippi. Uh, on March the 27th in Lindale, Georgia. Uh, and then uh, there'll be some other opportunities that pr pr will present themselves for the rest of the year. You can find all these by going uh, to either BurgessMinistries.com under events. Now, when you go to Burgess Ministries, it's any event that Sherry uh, and or I uh, are associated with. If you want to just know where the manchurch.com, where are the churches that are plugging in this discipleship strategy and they've got one of these services coming up, if you just rather look at those, uh, and that involves me or any of our teachers, uh, then go to themanchurch.com. You'll click on events, and you'll see a little uh, link there that's, that says Man Church Gatherings or Man Church Events. Click on that, and you can find churches anywhere near you that may have uh, any of our team coming in to teach and implementing the strategy if you'd like to kind of go and investigate that or be part of that. So uh, that's the two opportunities that you have and what's kind of going on. Don't forget we have the, the latest in the How to Be a Man 40-Day Devotional Series. Uh, what, what does it mean to be a disciple? 40 days on that. We have eight different writers that took that on, including, of course, a lot of the men who go out and teach uh, for themanchurch.com. Uh, that's available at, at themanchurch.com under the store. And also our next 40-week curriculum for community groups and church groups is coming out at the end of March, and it's going to be called Real Men. Uh, you'll go through 40 weeks studying eight different men of the Bible. So we're excited about where we're going. Uh, continue to pray uh, over this advancement of God's kingdom.
to reach and disciple men as instructed in Scripture. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Will you help us, Lord, to to understand the concept of your love for people today uh, and and to get it right biblically uh, through the the hard work that was uh, put in uh, by those that were inspired to write your perfect word and also for our brother J.I. Packer, who is now in your presence. Uh, the work that he did to, uh, uh, to help us to grasp it and understand uh, this concept of God is love as we unpack that correctly today and biblically uh, with your guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit. In your holy name we pray, amen. So that, that is the concept today, Session 12 of Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Uh, this, you hear that, now what we're going to find today, and this is going to be real important, and we're going to jump in there and we're going to go hard, is this is probably the concept that is most well-known, but as J.I. Packer lays out, and we've talked about uh, in prior studies, it's also one of the most misinterpreted or understood concepts of God, and that is the concept that states that God is love. Now, the world, they tend to like that. Uh, that, that you know, but, but many times uh, that statement is so broad and rarely defined that we may not fully understand it. And he talks about this uh, quite a bit in chapter 12 uh, from the book Knowing God. And uh, you, hopefully you have a copy of the book or the study guide uh, alongside uh, the Word of God. Uh, so this is, uh, this is one of the most tremendous, he says in chapter 1, one of the, I mean in the beginning of chapter 12, one, one of the most tremendous utterings in the Bible. But as I just said, J.I. Packer says correctly, it is one of the most tremendous utterings in the Bible. God is love but it's also one of the most misunderstood. And hopefully uh, we'll have a, you know, just I've been praying for the Holy Spirit to guide me, and thankfully, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not alone. I'm, I'm rolling along with J.I. Packer and his commentary and his help and also the Word of God th- to make sure that we unpack this correctly today. So if you have your Bible or something with your Bible on it, uh, let's go to Romans chapter 5, the great book of Romans, we did an entire Bible study series on the book of Romans. If you'd like to go back and pick that up at some time, you can find those archives at Burgess Ministries by clicking on Listen and then look for the Wednesday Bible study there. So Romans 5, verse 5, says this. Uh, let's, look at, let's look at what's happening in three, uh, th- th- in 4 first so we kind of know where, where Paul was going here. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, And now in verse 4, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We did a whole whole study on that. And then verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because, like like, what what is the hope that, that rises out of the condition that we find ourselves in, even through suffering? We we never lose hope, John 16, 33. uh, He says, "But, but hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into the hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, when we talk about us, what do we mean? The redeemed. This is not the unredeemed. And we're going to stay on that concept and foundation throughout this study. There's a lot of confusion about God's love. God's love is available, and it pours out on the redeemed. Okay, hang on to that. It may be available to all, but it's only poured out on the redeemed. 
it's almost like I've summed the whole chapter up with that right there, but stay with me because you, now we got to support that statement. So the reason why I like, and, and I'm not saying there's some great, great, great English translations of the Bible that are, that are really, really accurate. I like the English standard because it's real literal. Uh, it's the way I learn. It's not as beautiful uh, as the King James or the NIV, uh, but it's literal. And the New American Standard is also very, very good. But the reason why, once again, as you see, because well, there's a lot of King James versions uh, used in the book by J.I. Packer, but even he says in this particular verse, the most accurate uh, Greek to English word here about how God's love comes out is the word poured out. And the English standard does say poured out. So poured out into the heart. So, so God's love is poured out. Now, I want you to know why that's important. When we were studying the book of Acts, or if you go back and study the book of Acts on your own, you'll see that the Greek word that's used here is the same Greek word that's used in the book of Acts by, by Luke when he's discussing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, when, when, when the Holy Spirit was poured out uh, on the early church and when, when those followers of Jesus went from really, really flawed and really, really afraid to emboldened and solid and correctly telling the world who he was, this is the same word that, that Luke uses in Acts that now Paul is using in Romans. So picture that. You remember how, how the Holy Spirit was poured out? It, I mean, it, it was not subtle. And so God's love pouring out on the redeemed is also not subtle. It, it suggests a free flow, a large quantity of his love. It, it is, um, uh, it, it's, it's in the perfect tense, too. Paul's saying he's talking in the perfect tense. And, and why is that important? Because for the redeemed, the, 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 the question is, does God love me? Can I now receive his love properly? Paul says yes, and he uses the present tense, which means it's settled. Don't, don't doubt that. It, it's, it's done. If you've been redeemed, then God's love is now pouring out on you. Uh, and so uh, the third thing is uh, it describes as a ministry of the Spirit to those who have received him, to all that are born again. So in this verse, Paul first of all says this is, an, is a pouring out a tremendous large quantity of God's love is poured out, meaning that's the reason why we never lose hope, because the redeemed are loved by God, they are approved by God, and his love is pouring out. It's also in the present tense, meaning this is not up for debate, it is settled. And then the last part is it, it, it talks about the ministry that we've been provided, that it says it will be poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. So we've received God's overwhelming love, the pouring out of God's love as redeemed in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And now that's, that also is the, the, the ministry that has been given to us to now go out and represent God. So that, that's why this is important, and, and hopefully you understand uh, kind of the foundation of where we're going to go today. So let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the, the, the regular ministry of the Spirit, since that's the last thing that Paul says. Uh, he, and J.I. Packer says, One could wish that this aspect of his ministry was prized more highly than it is at the present time. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and, and here's, here's, here's what he says about how we play games with the Holy Spirit and we declare certain things of the Spirit to be more important by the simple fact that the Holy Spirit brings God's love into our life. Like we almost think, well, yeah, 
we, we receive God's love, but that's not near as intriguing as speaking in tongues or, or, or signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit can do. And J.I. Packer really kind of takes us to task about this. Uh, he says, with a perversity as pathetic as it is impoverishing, we have become preoccupied today. Now, remember, this was written in the 70s. Don't, don't miss that. Uh, today, with the extraordinary, sporadic, non-universal ministries of the Spirit, and then we get so obsessed with them that we neglect a general aspect of the Spirit, and that's the pouring out of God's love. Thus, we tend to show a great deal more interest in the gifts, gifts of healing and tongues, gifts of which Paul himself pointed out not all Christians are meant to partake anyway. We obsess over some gifts of the Holy Spirit that, that not all of us, even as the redeemed, even have. But God's love, even though that may be, uh, if, if you don't understand it, you, so for some reason that doesn't seem to be as intriguing to us as wishing we could speak in tongues or wishing we had the gift of healing or whatever gift of the Spirit. Why are we overlooking the one that all of us have? And that's the overwhelming pouring out of God's love. Uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, um, Paul goes on, and if you want to see where he's talking about speaking in tongues, you find that in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 30, and also in chapter 14 as well. He says, in the Spirit's ordinary work of giving us peace, joy, hope, and love through the shedding abroad in our hearts of the knowledge of the love of God, yet for some reason, speaking in tongues and signs and wonders and healings, for some reason, that has become more important to us than, than, than the, the parts of the Spirit that we all have, being peace, joy, hope, and love. He said to, to the Corinthians who had taken it for granted that the more tongues, the merrier. I love that line. That's funny. And, and, and the godlier, too. Paul had to insist that without love, which is the one we want to, over, we want to step over, without love, without sanctification, Without Christ's likeness, tongues were worth nothing. And that's where you find him when he starts talking about it in, in, in chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. Remember what he says? You can have all the greatest spiritual gifts in the world, but if you don't understand the concept of the love, it's all meaningless. So, so J.I. Packer says probably the reason why we, we treat it like this is we don't fully understand it. And then he goes on to talk about some other aspects of that but, but one of the things I want to touch on as he moves on unpacking Romans 5, 5 a little more, one thing he says is revival, because you always hear this, we need revival. Revival means the work of God restoring to a, a, you know, a kind of a dead church in, in manner out of the ordinary, the standards of the Christian life and experience, which the New Testament sets forth as being entirely ordinary and, and, and at a right-minded concern for revival, will it really express itself not in the hankering after tongues, meaning show us some kind of signs and wonders. Ultimately, it's of no importance whether we speak in tongues or not, but rather in the longing that the Spirit may shed God's love abroad in our hearts with greater power. Why do we think we don't have revival unless we see signs and wonders when we ought to say, I'll tell you where revival comes from, is with these basic concepts of God's overwhelming love to the redeemed and the peace and the joy and the hope that comes with this, if we would concentrate on that as the foundation of revival, we probably would experience real revival because that's long-lasting. And this is something that every single redeemed follower of Jesus 
has access to and should have. Uh, so anyway, let's start uh, with with a couple of things, two general comments on um, uh, on the statement about um, about God's love. Because remember, the concept of God is love, as we find in in First John um, chapter four, verses eighteen and sixteen. So if you have your Bible or something with your Bible on it, let's turn over to First John real quick. Um, and, and let's look at chapter 4. So in chapter 4, first of all, let's look at verse 8, and here's what uh, John says to this. Remember, he's a lot older now when he's writing First John. He said, anyone who does not uh, know God because um, uh, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And see, in typical fashion, human beings will just t- totally disregard uh, parts of verses uh, when it says anyone who does not love does not know God. So we'll leave that part out, and then we'll just take the last part, because God is love. And then we'll make that the, the, the mantra of everything. We'll walk around with just this very general, general statement that God is love. And that is true, but you can't forget that, 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 that God is love is manifested only in the redeemed. And so look at verse 16, verse 16 of chapter 4. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, God is love, and here's the part we like to leave out, and we've done many studies on this, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So God's love pours on the redeemed so in such a, a, an incredible way that the redeemed can't help but also have that same love of God that is pouring through us. So let's look at, uh, at what he's talking about. Two general comments on John's statement will clear the way ahead, according to J.I. Packer. So God is love, that statement, is not the complete truth about God so far as the Bible is concerned. Everybody stay with me. See, remember, this is one of the things that this this knowing God is going to do for us, is if you're going to know God, then you have to, in his character, and in, in, in the, the part, his persona, you can't just take God and take out the one you like and say, well, this is all he is. I mean, God is love, end of subject. No, the Bible actually says God is more than just that. Uh, he is love, but, uh, but you have to understand the other concepts. So let's look at this. The reason why you can't just grab that statement and say, this is all I need to know about God. God is love. Because if you're not careful, then you just start taking that and throwing it at things that God doesn't love. So... And, and here's another reason why you can't be that abstract about it because you can't have that just stand alone because here's what it says. J.I. Packer makes this point. He said, from a believer's standpoint of what the whole revelation set forth in Scripture tells us about its author, meaning God, the statement presupposes all the rest of the biblical witnesses to God. So if, if, this, if God who John is speaking, if, 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 the, if, God, if the God who made the world who judged it by the flood, who called Abraham and made uh, of him a nation, who chastened his Old Testament people by conquest, captivity, exile, who sent his son to save the world, who cast off unbelieving Israel, and shortly before John wrote this had destroyed Jerusalem, and who would one day judge the world in righteousness. It is this God who John says is love. Okay, so, so John says he's love. Well, if you say all that, that, that's all we need to know about God, then God's version of love includes 
judging the entire world by flood and killing everybody but eight people. It would include Abraham having a nation made. It would include his constant refining of the Old Testament people. He allowed them to be taken into captivity and made slaves. He allowed them to be defeated in battle. He had them exiled. But yes, then he sends his son to save the world. He also took unbelieving Israel, his chosen people, and said, if you reject my son, you're out. Okay, so, and, and, and then, as we said, right before John wrote uh, these words, right before he wrote them, God had just destroyed Jerusalem. And we know that one day God is going to judge the world in righteousness, meaning those who oppose him and are not redeemed will be cast into the lake of fire. So, so you see, you got to be real careful just taking the word God is love and throwing it around with no, with, with no, real, no real dive uh, into this statement. So we have to make sure, it's actually perverse, J.I. Packer says, to quote John's statement, as some do, as if it called into question the biblical witness of the severity of God's justice. It is not possible to argue that a God who is love cannot also be a God who condemns and punishes the disobedient, for it is precisely of the God who does these things that John is speaking. So this is why you have to be careful, because if you just take the term God is love and you don't dive in to look at every aspect of God's character, including his justice, including his wrath, then this is where you get into very dangerous false teaching like uh, the, uh, the Rob Bells of the day who went from you know, pretending to be a teacher of Scripture and a follower of Christ who now says because God is love that everybody's going to heaven because God's love. I mean, now he's conveniently leaving out these things I just told you about that happened in Scripture uh, and he conveniently leaves out what the revelation clearly says is going to happen on the day of judgment. Rob Bell has just decided that he's going to take God as love, and because God is love, he loves everybody, redeemed and unredeemed. And he, I guess somehow this standard of, of the, the, the horrible suffering that, that God went through when he sent his only son to the cross, I guess wasn't necessary. Because Rob Bell says because God is love and the Rob Bells of the world, the universalists, that everybody's going to heaven. Don't worry about it. It's all going to work out. That's a very dangerous theology. And it, and, and it cannot be biblically supported. So at some point, you have, to, you have to now say that the Bible is not inerrant. That there's, there's some things in there about God that just aren't true anymore. So be very, very careful with that. So, And then the, the other example that, uh, that J.I. Packer says, the mistake of saying in an abstract way, God is love is all I need to know about God. He said, well, we also know that John said in John 4, uh, verse 24, that God is spirit. So, so in John's gospel, in our Lord's own word to the Samaritan woman, who's, who's, she's all concerned at the well about where we're supposed to worship. Well, you know, some of the fathers say we worship here, and our fathers say we worship over here. And Jesus says, well, ma'am, God is spirit. He's, he's everywhere. There, there's no one place where God belongs. And he's making this point to her about what you're talking about is a moot point because, because God is spirit. So 
If I'm going to take God as love and say, that's it, that defines everything about God, that's all I need to know. Well, then what am I supposed to do with a statement like God is spirit? It's as abstract. Do I now say, well, wait a minute, okay, so God is love, God is spirit, and then not even really try to figure out what that means and go, well, well all I need to know about God is he's spirit. See, that, that's why you've got to know you no, got to know, know it all because Scripture says that God is love. It says that God is spirit. Uh, and also, we also know in 1 John, back over at 1 John again, chapter 1, verse 5, here the Apostle John uh, says uh, that God is light. God is love, God is spirit, God is light. The assertion God is love has to be interpreted in the light of what these other two statements teach. And so let's look at both of them. So let's take God as spirit. When our Lord said this, he was seeking to to you know, do away with the thought that the Samaritan woman, the, the idea that there could only be one place for worship, as if God were locally confined in some way. So Jesus clarifies and says, Spirit uh, you know, contrasts with flesh, and, and, and Christ's point is that while we, being in flesh, can be present in only one place at one time, God, being in spirit, is not limited at all. Uh, he could be anywhere. Uh, and he goes on to say, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So and what about when we say that God is light? What, 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 what do we mean by that? We're told uh, that the God who is spirit, who is love, is also light. John made this statement against uh, certain professing Christians who had lost touch with the moral realities and were claiming that nothing they did was really a sin. Does that sound familiar? There's no moral standard anymore. God loves us just like we are. You know, yeah, yeah, you, no, he really doesn't. No, God, God offers his love, and he offers us redemption to leave the way we are and, and, and to be redeemed. Then we get the outpouring of his love. If you don't believe that, I mean, let's just look at, at, at Psalms chapter 5. Psalms chapter 5. Uh, here's what the psalmist says here. He says, um, for you, and this is verse 4 of Psalms 5, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Well, I thought God was love. Well, he is, but, but he hates the unredeemed because he hates people who do evil. Okay, listen to this. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Wait a minute. But, but listen to what he says. But I, someone who is redeemed, a person who is in the right standing with God, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I mean, this is the Bible. I just want to be clear. So you really can't just say uh, an abstract statement that God is love, and that means that that love is pouring out on anybody, anywhere, anytime, uh, whether you're redeemed or not redeemed. That is not biblically correct. And the God is light shows that a little bit because we're told God who is spirit is also light. John made this statement about those who started saying it really didn't matter what they did or didn't do, that they would still be okay with God, and it's really not sin. The force of John's words is brought out by the next clause. Listen. God is light. Now listen to First John 1, 5. Look what he says next. God is light, and in him, talking about God, 
There is no darkness at all. None. I know we got some idiot on TikTok or something today uh, that decide, decides he can be a pastor of the gospel. Remember 2 Peter? We, we studied that not too long ago. 2 Peter is screaming, be careful, be careful. False teachers, false prophets will be rising up out of the church. We've got a pastor out there right now who says that he, you know, that he, God made him uh, gay and that he is still a pastor. God's changed his standard on intimacy and marriage. And he went as far today as to say, he's got it on TikTok. It's been sent to me several times that Jesus had repent of racism because of his conversation in Matthew 7 uh, with the woman who uh, was, was trying to get healing. And Jesus made the comment uh, to her, why should I give to uh, the food that's intended for the children, to the dogs? He's really making a statement that the Gentiles will be grafted in through his redemption because the Jewish people saw the Gentiles as dogs. And he's making uh, a stand against that view of, uh, of the Jewish people. And, and then she says, but even the dogs uh, eat the food that falls off the children's table. And then Jesus loves that comment because she gets what he's saying, and he says that she would be redeemed. Now, this idiot uh, claims that, uh, uh, that that's Jesus having racist tones from being a Jewish man, and the woman caused him to repent of his racism. So this is a blasphemous heretic that claims that Jesus had to repent of a sin. But then we've heard in Scripture right now that he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus had to be perfect for redemption to count, which is why Satan uses idiots like this guy to try to convince you that there's something wrong with Jesus' claim that he was 100% man and 100% God and that he went to the cross as the perfect lamb. That's what that's all about, and you better be leery of that. So anyway, so and, and, I, and may God bring this man down. And, and may, he, may he do away with his blasphemous ways. Hopefully, he'll through redemption, I hope. If not, then I hope he takes him out. Uh, so, so 1 John 1, 5, light means holiness and purity, and, and measured by God's law, darkness means moral perversity and unrighteousness as measured by the same law. And you find this in 1 John 2, 7 through 11, write that down, 1 John 2. We've, we've, we've talked about these verses before, 7 through 11. And you also find it in chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 10. So this is the point. Uh, the only ones who walk in the light, seeking to be like God in holiness and righteousness of life, uh, these are the ones who claim for themselves the love of God. Not darkness. I just read you Psalms chapter 5. When, 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 when the psalmist there says God hates all evildoers, it, that, that he, he hates deceitful people, uh, who, who are bent on doing evil. So God, so the God who is love is first and foremost light, and any sentimental ideas of his love as indulgent, benevolent, softness, divorced of any moral standard is, uh, is just ridiculous. It, 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 it's, it's blasphemy. It's, it's heresy. God's love is a holy love. The God who made, whom Jesus made known is not a God who is indifferent to moral distinctions, but a God who loves righteousness and hates iniquity, a God whose ideal for his children is that they should be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's in Matthew 5, 48. I remember the first time I read that, Matthew 5, 48, I thought, perfect? Well, I'm never going to be perfect. If you're redeemed, you've been made fully righteous. And that's what is being discussed here. Jesus is telling us in Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus is telling us that we cannot receive the love of a holy God if we are in iniquity, so he will remove all iniquity. He will make us fully righteous, so we are then made perfect in him, and then our perfect father can then pour out on his perfect people his perfect love who were made, who were made perfect by his redemption that he, that he gave through his own son. That's where God, that's who God loves. That's where God's love is pouring out. And that's what we have to understand and not make these abstract statements about God is love. God's love is stern, for it expresses holiness in the lover and seeks holiness for the beloved. Scripture does not allow us to suppose that because God is love, we may look to him to confer happiness on people who will not seek holiness. I remember that so vividly, and Sherry wrote this in, in the book that she cranked out, and we went through our suffering, and you remember that statement? And Sherry said she cried out to God, but God, we were so happy. And God said, but I want you to be holy. You are going through this not because I know this doesn't make you happy. That's not my goal. My goal is to make you holy because I'm holy. And if I, and I will refine you into holiness the way I see the best way to do it. And my will is always perfect, and may my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I, I'm not here to try to make you happy. I'm here to try to make you holy. And J.I. Packer uh, confers with that. And uh, what we should be seeking is holiness and to, and, and, or to shield his love, uh, loved ones from trouble when he knows that they need trouble to further their sanctification. Let me say that again. He does not t- He loves us, his love, features trouble for us in the refinement process. Um, if you're a parent, you kind of understand this concept a little bit. Uh, I mean, are you trying to provide a place for your children where they can uh, harm themselves, get involved in immoral actions, do these things that you know are going to harm them, or would you be willing to make them uncomfortable to give them some discomfort that might cause them to turn from that kind of behavior, them to suffer a consequence from that behavior or to be allowed to be taken through something that ultimately would lead to their own good. See, that is love too. You know, and that's why I don't understand, and it drives me crazy. Every time someone who is who claims to be redeemed, if something bad starts happening and they utter these blasphemous statements, well, I thought God loved me. But I just thought God loved me. I can't believe I'm in this situation. I thought God loved me. If you want to know whether God loves you or not, look to the cross. I think he went on record for how much he loves you. He went on record for how much he loves me. He could have wiped us off the face of the earth and been justified in doing so. Suffering doesn't surprise me. Grace and redemption surprises me. I've said that many times. I have never been mad at God about the sufferings I've been through. I've been upset with myself that I was so sinful. That's what it took. For God to get my attention and to refine me into the person that He is that He is continuing to make me, and I haven't arrived yet. It's a dangerous theology on this side of heaven to ever get to a point where you say, "Well, I think I've done enough. I think I've arrived. I think I'm there. I think I've done just enough to get saved. 
I think I'm redeemed. I think God's love is pouring out on me. Now I'm going to knock it out of gear, and I'm going to live. I'm going to live here and, and, and seek happiness and pleasure because I think I've done just enough to be redeemed. Let me tell you something, brother or sister. That's a dangerous theology. That's dangerous. And God forbid you stay there because you, you may have miscalculated that. I know for a long time I did. So let's look at the next balancing comment. God is love is the complete truth about God so far as the Christian is concerned. You need to make that distinction. As far as a Christian is concerned, it is absolutely true that God is love. To say God is light is to imply that God's holiness finds expression in everything he, he says and does. So similarly, the statement God is love means that he his love finds expression in everything that he says and does. The knowledge that this is, you know, so for us personally is the supreme comfort for Christians. As a believer, we find in the cross of Christ assurance that we as individuals, because of what Christ did, are beloved of God because the Son of God loved me, loved you, and gave himself for me, for you. And this is what Paul was saying uh, to the church at Galatia in Galatians 2.20. He said, just what I just said, if you don't believe God loves you, but look, look, what, look what he did. I mean, look, look what he did. He went to the cross. And if that doesn't show you how, how, what he's willing to do for the redeemed so we can be redeemed and then receive his love, and uh, he says, uh, so the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Knowing this, we're able to apply to ourselves the promise that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. It has been abused many, many, many times. Let me say this. No matter what you're going through, if you have been redeemed, and only if you have been redeemed, yes, whatever you're going through, God is doing it for your good and for my good. But if you don't love God and you have not been redeemed, that promise does not apply to you. I mean, people will take Romans 8.28 and just apply it to people that, that are not redeemed. Look, it's, it, read it for yourself. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. So what you could say is all things do not work together for good for those who hate God and have not been redeemed. If you have not been redeemed, whatever's going on with you, it might be God trying to get your attention to get you redeemed. And I guess you could say in a, in a, in a sort of way that's what, but it's not, it's not, that's, you're not under God's plan if you have rejected to submit to his will. If you haven't repented and you have not been redeemed by God, then everything going on in your life, your life who knows where it's coming from or what, it, what, it, what it's headed to. All things work together for good only for those that have been redeemed, who love God and have been called according to his purpose. And notice he says, for those that have been redeemed, let's get back to that category again, and I hope that's you. And if it's not, I hope, I hope you'll consider that, that you, need, you need to be redeemed. So it's because, let me tell you the promise that comes with that. If you are redeemed, this, this scripture does not say that some things are working together for your good. It says that all things are working together for your good. Every single thing that happens to us, if you have been redeemed, 
is ex- expressing God's love to us and comes to us for a furthering of God's purpose for us. But you've got to make that distinction. That does not apply to those that are unredeemed. So, trying to define God's love again, this is a statement uh, that, that kind of sums up the next um, attempt at trying to understand this. God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners whereby, having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relation. That, that's how God's love is, is shown, is that he offers us redemption. But to receive it and have it poured out on you, you got to be redeemed. He has offered it to all who are willing. So God's love is an exercise of his goodness. Let's, let's unpack that a minute. The Bible means by God's goodness, it means his cosmic generosity. Goodness in God, uh, it, it's, it's the perfection in God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all of his creatures. Meaning that, yes, ultimately God is good, and that goodness means that he's willing to be benevolent and gracious to all who are willing to repent and say, please forgive me. He's, he's good. He has a goodness that says, I, I will, the sincere repentance, I will acknowledge and I will redeem you and I will bring you into my presence and I will pour out on you my love. So, so a personal fellowship with God is allowed because of the exercise in his love of his goodness. The next thing, God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards sinners. As such, it is the nature, grace, and mercy. It's an outgoing of God in kindness, which, which is not merely undeserved. I mean, none of us deserve his grace, but, but uh, you know, it's, it's actually to the contrary. We don't deserve it at all. It says God's love, if you're the object of God's love, these, these are rational creatures who have broken God's law, whose nature is to corrupt in God's sight, who merit only condemnation and finally banishment from his presence, it is staggering, which is what I always say, God's wrath does not shock me. I fully understand God's wrath. I'm shocked by his grace and mercy. And and J.I. Packer says the same thing. He says, it is staggering that God should love sinners, yes, yet, and all, if you look, he does love the sinner enough to allow redemption. He, he loves the unlovable. And, um, and, and that's, that, that, that is staggering that he says, uh, I offer my love, and the key is offer, I offer my love to all who are willing to receive it no matter how bad you've been. It's available to you. Does that mean that he loves you in your current state? Well, Psalms 5 said no because he hates the iniquity of your sin, but he offers his love to all who are willing to receive it. God loves people because he, cho- he, he has chosen to love them, according to Wesley. He hath loved us. He hath loved us because he just would love. And he's echoing what um, was said about God in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. No reason for his love can be given except his own sovereign good pleasure. He has chosen to love us enough to offer us redemption. God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners. It is not vague, meaning I kind of somewhat allow some people, some I'm throwing it out there as a big, uh, no, he's saying to you, 
whoever you are, he's saying to Rick Burgess, I, my goodness is, and my love is so powerful that I'll offer it even to you, Rick Burgess, wretched sinner whose iniquity I hate. But if you will, if you will confess and repent and you will, you will submit to my lordship, I will pour out my love even on your wretched self because I will make you fully righteous through my son to bring you into my love, which I will pour out on you. It's not just a macro, it's micro. I mean, you, you, you matter that much to God. And you'll see this laid out in, in the God's purpose of his love was formed before creation. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 talks about that. Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 4. God's love to sinners involves his identifying himself with our welfare. You know, in previous chapters, you know, J.I. Packers made the point that God's end in all things is his own glory, that he should be manifested, known, admired, and adored. This statement is true, but that statement can be incomplete. It needs to be balanced by a recognition that through setting his love on human beings, God has voluntarily bound up his own final happiness with ours. It's, it's not for nothing that the Bible habitually speaks of, of God as the loving father and husband of his people, meaning he desires, I mean, Second Peter says this, it's his desire that none should perish. He, he, he is thrilled by the thought that any of his sinful children that, ha, that have rebelled against him, he celebrates and seems to find joy in our redemption which is really kind of hard to wrap your mind around. It, it says God's, God is celebrating and, is, and completely loves the fact that all of us would finally be out of trouble and that we would be redeemed. Think about that. Think about your children. I, I've, I've heard this said before, that a parent is only as peaceful and joyful as the most troubled child. You know, whatever child is wayward, that, that one child is always on the mind of the parent. And what did Jesus say? He said, you know, we'll, we'll leave the 99 to go find the one. Uh, and there'll be a celebration in heaven when that one comes in. So I think when Peter says that profound statement, it's his desire that none should perish. And that goes back to another thing you've heard me mention that, that Sherry and I learned and Sherry taught it to me through learning it through the process of writing the book that, um, that she said we need to have compassion for God because even though our, our son died an earthly death at two and a half years old, the children of God are perishing by the day and then we're going to get our son back in the new heaven and the new earth. But those who, who refuse to be redeemed, who reject their father's love and will not receive it, he will never have them back and they are forever separated from their perfect father. And as Sherry said, extremely profound statement. And when I realized that for the first time, I actually had compassion for God. God does desire that you be redeemed. God loves, God's love to sinners was expressed by the gift of his son to be our Savior. I said it earlier. If you want to know if God loves you, just look to the cross. See, that's the question, and, 
this is the thing I think we need to think about, and I say this often because I need to hear it. The question of God's love, is, is it's, it's unquestionable. I, I look at the cross, I see it. So the bigger question is not whether God loves us. He's been clear about that. The bigger question is whether we love God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's Romans chapter 8 again, but this time verse 32. Just look to the cross as the crowning proof of the reality and the boundlessness of God's love. John goes on to say, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an anointing sacrifice for our sins. I'd write that down. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. On days that you question God's love, you need to read that. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. What does the gospel say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Now that doesn't mean the the fallen state of the world because we're called not to love the world and its ways. What John really means is for God so loved the people of the world that he gave his only son. Paul writes about this as well. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's also Romans chapter 5, but that's verse 8. And he finds the proof that the Son of God loved me in the fact that he gave himself for me. That's back to Galatians 2.20. Do you feel kind of bad right now when we're going over these verses that there's ever been a moment that crept into your mind that you question whether God loved you or not? It's really quite clear that that he does, but a bigger question is do you love him? Do I love him? God's love to sinners reaches its objective as it brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relation. A covenant relation is one in which two parties are permanently pledged to each other in mutual service and dependence. Marriage is an example of a covenant. Sherry and I have agreed that we are now in a covenant relationship and we are permanently pledged to each other in mutual service and dependence on each other and to each other. A covenant promise is one by which a covenant relation is set up, like our vows that we have uh, in marriage. A biblical religion has the form of a covenant relation with God. The first occasion on which the terms of the relation were made plain is when God showed himself to Abraham, El Shaddai, God Almighty, God All-Sufficient, and then formally gave him a covenant promise to be his God and the God of his descendants after him. You find that covenant in Genesis 17, 1 through 7. Genesis 17, 1 through 7. Now in the New Testament, all Christians inherit this promise through faith in Christ. As Paul argues to the church at Galatia in Galatians 3, 15 through 29, what does it mean? Is it in truth? Uh, Paul says, God's promise contains everything. This is the first and fundamental promise, uh, says one of the Puritans. Um, He says, indeed, it is the life and soul of all promises. 
Here's another Puritan, Brooks, who wrote in the works of the Puritans. He said this, that it is as if he said, talking about God, you shall have as true an interest in all my attributes for your good as they are mine for my glory. My grace, saith God, shall be yours to pardon you, and my power shall be yours to protect you, and my wisdom shall be yours to direct you, and my goodness shall be yours to relieve you, and my mercy shall be yours to supply you, and my glory shall be yours to crown you. This is a comprehensive promise for God to be our God, and it includes all. God is mine, and his covenant is, when I am his, everything is also available to me that is of God. He's made a covenant to all of us, and that covenant shows his love for us that he says, I will make a covenant with the redeemed that I will forgive you and you will be made fully righteous and you will come into my presence and you will be co-heirs with my son. Thus, faith in Christ introduces us into a relation big with a blessing that is impossible to calculate with our finite mind both now and for eternity. Notice I said both now and for eternity. My life has been radically changed now. The way I see everything has been changed, not by my new self-control or my new commitment to a code of conduct, no, just the fruit of God's love and the power of his Holy Spirit, which pours his love out out on me continuously, is continuing to change me as I go with him. So why, based on what we know about God's love today, why do I ever allow my loyalties to be divided? How how can I let anything draw me away from God? How, How can that even happen? And the only way it does is that I forget these things that are true or I don't really understand God's love for me, and I don't understand what it looks like. John wrote that God is love in order to make an ethical point. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You find that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that I show to others, the way I treat my wife, if you're a woman, the way you treat your husband, the way I treat my family, the way I treat my neighbors, the the way I treat my brothers and sisters of the church, the way I treat people at work. Is there anything that people see in all these relationships that they see the way we operate and love other people? Do they see the greatness of God's love to me now flowing from me to them? This is something to meditate on. And go back to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13 to examine ourselves. So, God is love. It's an abstract statement, but as you begin to unpack it, you find out there's quite a lot to it. And hopefully, uh, like uh, the process of me preparing for this, hopefully maybe today you see it a little clearer. Uh, Maybe you see it a little differently. And maybe it has led to time of reflection and examination. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for this lesson. Mm. And uh, 
let us right now take time to thank you for your love. Uh, thank you for your, your spirit. Thank you for uh, the light that illuminates. And thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to being willing to offer us redemption and to be made, to made, full, be made fully righteous for all of our iniquity to be removed so that we can then stand there and yet let your love just pour out on us and to know that no matter what we're going through, if we've been redeemed, that you're working all these things, not some of these things, all these things for our good. But may, may we also take time to reflect and ask an uncomfortable question. Am I redeemed? Am I one of those that you love? And now you can love me clearly and powerfully with with no obstacles, nothing separating me from your love? Or is my life still full of iniquity and sin that you hate? And now that iniquity and that sin stands between your love and me. Well, then it needs to be removed. And maybe today is the day that you confess that sin, and we all confess any sin in our lives, and say, God, please remove my iniquity. I want to be made fully righteous, and I want to begin to receive the outpouring of your love. In your name we pray, amen. If I can help you in any way or if you have any questions, you can follow up with me, rick at rickandbubba.com. Lord willing, we'll talk to you next week.